0: This episode is part of our series discussing the debate topics released for Debatable Open 2021. The motions can be found in the description along with timestamps for your convenience. Please enjoy.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Debatable. Today, we're joined by our Econ Motion contributor, Luigi Alcaneces. Luigi is the Open Semi-Finalist of Cambridge InterVarsity for the year 2020, was the Open Quarter Finalist for Oxford InterVarsity in 2020, and Open semi and 6th Best Speaker of Asia during the last ABP held in 2020 as well. So hi, Luigi. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really a wonderful opportunity to be here.
1: Yeah, so before we begin with the actual motions, we have to ask a question that we ask all of our motion contributors about their particular topic, which would be yours, I guess, Econ. What do you think makes Econ motions very unique, besides the fact that people have a big, big fear of them, including myself?
2: Yeah, Um. definitely. I, I think that economics motions are mostly different from other motions because they're the ones that are mostly systems-based. And... Um, Often, economics, it's really scary because you have to think about a lot of theories and a lot of models and a lot of math. And I think that's a misconception that most people have with respect to debating in particular, that you have to always memorize a lot of equations. But really, economics is really all about systems and really all about how transactions are regulated, how they are formed, how economic agents and individual stakeholders behave with one another those are usually the most important things that people have to take into account with econ motions. And that's why they're, they're the, I think they're the most fun because when you think about a system, you think about everything that interacts with each other. And um, that's, that's the best potential for econ motions that it has.
0: I like that you made the distinction between, you know, debating economics versus like actual economics because like in actual economics, that's where you look at the math. And like, I, I love that we brought you into this um, as opposed to, like, myself or Venti because Venti and I both, like, if you look at our notes in an Econ motion, sometimes it's just straight-up formulas, and we just talk about the formulas oh God. there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So if you were a novice debater and you didn't have, like, knowledge about these formulas or even about these systems, for example, like, you don't know how exactly the system works, how should a novice debater handle these kinds of motions? Like, how can they intuit those systems even if they haven't read up on the particulars of those systems? Of course, of course.
2: So I want to make a disclaimer first. The first disclaimer is that don't fake it if you really don't think that you know it. And I think that's the biggest problem that many debaters may have when they encounter an economics motion, that they try to force supply and demand analysis into every argument for no reason at all, even if it really doesn't make sense, particularly in that particular context. And... In those debates, it's better to simplify your language first. And my first tip is break down the motion into its simple terms like we always do for every motion. But in Econ motions in particular, break down into specific agents and specific actors and specific transactions and identify what are the costs and benefits that that come from a policy. Um, there's this trend right now in debating where people talk about the delta in debate, right? like you know, the triangle in, in, in math and all of that. Oh, God, but you're right. Really, really though, all that means is what is the change in this debate? What is the net change that happens? And in, in economic terms, that's like the marginal difference in, in economics. But in debate, that's just the change. That's what you're looking for. Look for that change. And that's where debates and arguments usually lie.
1: All right. Thanks for that. I think as someone who doesn't like econ motions, I also benefit from that kind of advice. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So let's jump right into the first motion, which I particularly like because it is also about politics in a way. Um, It's about trading more with regional blocs as opposed to international bodies. The first question I have with a motion like this would be, what is the exclusivity of either side? Because I could imagine the debate or at least some debaters wanting to have it all by arguing that you can also trade with ASEAN and at the same time trade with China and the U.S. as well. So what do you think are disadvantages with trying to meddle two at the same time?
2: Yeah, um, usually in economics motions, it's really, really important to really identify what the trade-off is. And I think that's what you're looking at with mutual exclusivity because when— in real life, obviously, there's like a lot of this overlaps with another. Regionalism interacts with globalization all the time. And I know I'm using some big terms here, but essentially region, like regional trading agreements and regional actors always interact all the time with global superpowers. But what I wanted to challenge with this motion in particular is try and identify where in which regionalism becomes like it it comes into fruition its own benefits. Like where does it bring its own benefits that are exclusive when they particularly trade with one another without global superpowers interfering, without them influencing those trading agreements, or without them leading those initiatives themselves. So I think the most intuitive part of this motion that um, they have to address first is how much leverage do global superpowers actually have? And how much do they influence current trading agreements as different countries attempt to trade with one another today? And then that's where the, the the motion comes in. That's where the exclusivity of everything comes in.
0: Okay, so okay, so how do you characterize like economic integration? Um, on a re- in a regional sense, especially in relation to what you were talking about, like bilateral trading agreements with global superpowers, or perhaps like entering into like these big um, multilateral economic institutions led by um, particular global superpowers, for example, like Bretton Woods institutions, the WTO, those kinds of things. How do you characterize both of them, especially in relation to each other?
2: Yeah, so I think the best way to characterize um, regionalism and the attempts to regionalize and create um, alternative economic institutions compared to the institutions that you mentioned, like the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, is trying to mimic the same functions that they do, but in localized, more tailor fit terms in conditions that different countries can agree with. So I'll give a more concrete example. Um, The creation of the SADC, the Southern African Development Community, or the creation of the ASEAN, the Um, association of Southeast Asian nations, for example, um, do pursue economic integration in terms of either, but not limited to, the pursuit of um, the reduction of tariffs with one another or the cost to trading or, for example, increased labor migration towards another country and preferential trading agreements on that basis. Or also, even in some cases, the pursuit of a single currency, which the European Union can, to some extent, be considered as a regional organization. So those are the some of the facets of economic integration that are part of this debate that people can uh, meddle with and wrestle with.
1: So you already mentioned some benefits to regional integration in relation to tailor-fit policies, lower costs, um, even cultural integration as part of it. My question would be, how do you justify all those benefits in relation to things you're trading off? Like you're trading off like the possibility of better goods or even lower costs because you are dealing with China, for example, or giving up what China has to offer, what the U.S. has to offer. So how would you frame it? such that all of these regional benefits are much more desirable for a developing country that might be just starting out their economy?
2: Yeah, so I, I honestly think that the best way to contextualize this debate is trying to understand how China and the United States would react. Um, I, I'd like to just say and highlight my inspiration for making this motion. It's a paper written by Danny Rodrick on new regionalism and New regionalism is this concept where, in light of the efforts of international institutions that are led by the global superpowers like the United States and China, in light of their pursuit of trade wars with one another, trying to own certain areas of the world by creating things like the BRI initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative, or maybe the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership for the case of the United States, or the RCEP for the case of China, in light of the creation of those policies, different institutions like, like the ASEAN or like other regional trading organizations try to create more and more leverage and collectivize with each other. So I think that it's a better way to frame and mitigate the worst effects of probably many pernicious policies that are imposed by them, whilst preserving all the things that you just mentioned, such as the cultural ties, the agency to create economic policies on their own metric, and your ability to, to some extent, maintain your sovereignty as a nation with, with a, a regional bloc that protects you with those shared interests. Um, that's a, I think that's my favorite way to understand the motion, as opposed to other blanket dichotomies that sound so absolute, like, oh, it's culture, oh, it's money. It really isn't always that black and white, but it's always about trying to work within the tension, of other influencing actors that are already trying to intervene now.
0: All right, so given that, uh, I noticed that that's a very compelling argument for government that you can actually balance this. It seems to me like a catch-22. So in the, in given that, how do you expect or how would you recommend opposition to maneuver around those very compelling frames that you just gave?
2: Exactly, so I think the best opportunity there is to recognize the frame in which Gov is framing this argument and use it to your advantage. So remember when I created this argument, I'm saying that different global superpowers are already as an endemic reality attempting to intervene and are already attempting to create economic institutions that are already dominant in the status quo. Given that context, I think opposition has the best opportunity here to present that countries like China already are attempting to leverage bilateral trading agreements against many of these countries and are attempting to create their own economic institutions with other actors that already benefit from them, which are proximate to them, um, because they already have a lot of hold over these powers. Regionalism, as mentioned in the motion, actually makes it harder and harder for these countries to especially negotiate in those agreements when different countries like China can single out some countries when they attempt to regionalize. And I think that's where the RCEP, I know there are a lot of motions on the RCEP now, if you've noticed, like the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership just sounds so much more powerful when you think about it. Because when ASEAN is already able to opt in to a trading agreement that is led by China, that is already negotiated by China and led by China and by many global superpowers with other competing organizations that already exist, that is the best way to maximize your competitive advantage. That is the best way to get a better trading deal. So um, it cuts the same thread in you, if you think about it. And I think that's how you create a spin in an economic motion, even though like you usually think that it's one or the other, but it usually isn't one or the other. It's a, it's a debate and that's why it's possible.
1: So I think you mentioned quite a bit already in terms of the cultural ties as well as the cost, even a little bit of politics. I guess before we end this motion and move on, I just wanted to ask what possible other angles you had in mind when you made this motion, like what wild extensions can you imagine teams running or what personally would you run if you had the opportunity to debate this?
2: There's also the potential to think about um, non-economic not, not so direct economic impacts that are in terms of GDP or in terms of profit or in terms of trading in general. Most trading debates are also in relation to, as you mentioned, a geopolitical relations with one another. And what I'd want to emphasize here is that there's also a lot of potential to go into areas of conflict resolution in areas in terms of peace resolution or in areas in terms of being able to create stronger, non-economic ties and other political arrangements and agreements so that you can leverage yourself on the technologies of other countries, leverage yourself on the governments of other countries to pursue um, benefits for the world in general. So um, honestly, honestly, my, uh, my other ideas do include trying to reduce global conflict in general in certain cases. That's a debatable issue for both sides. Or also the issue in terms of resolving issues in terms of science, climate change, or being able to have innovation in terms of uh, increasing technology and information transfer with other nations. That's also very inherent to international trade, but also it changes in terms of the dynamic when you think about regionalism and internationalism in that scale on how knowledge is transferred on that basis. A lot of potential on those arguments too.
0: All right, so we can move on to the second motion, which is about megacities. Now, megacities are, are cities that have more than 10 million people living in it, um, and how they should be run by multinational corporations. Our first question is actually, what do you mean by being run by multinational corporations? Like, would there be any like transitions of power that will be involved in it, or like how will they deal with the day-to-day um, like operations or logistics that comes with running a city as big as a megacity, like will they also be replacing the government, will they be like working side by side with the government, all those different like considerations that government would be thinking about when they're trying to characterize this, um, this motion.
2: Yeah, so I'd want to emphasize that. Uh, given the wording of the motion, it is definitely possible and plausible for a government to create different variations of the policy. So I want to emphasize that there are some general ways in which you can understand that. So number one, as you mentioned, what is the interference and what is the level of involvement that government may have? Some government policies may say that governments still have control over national, um, fiscal, and monetary policy. So when I say that, I'm talking about in terms of government spending, in terms of taxation, or in terms of their ability to print and um, uh, produce money in the economy, or be able to create bailouts, for example, which are all created by the government, or also decisions in terms of the military or geopolitics or national security. Those are usually some decisions that are seeded towards the government. What most government teams would do in this debate when they create a model is to define how a corporation can particularly make decisions in uh, city level for local government units, but also in terms of how it interacts with the national and regional um, economic development model that a city may create. So this includes, but it's not obviously limited to um, decisions in terms of zoning laws, property loss, decisions in terms of migration and the limits towards immigration towards a certain urban center because... Um, As mentioned in the info side, when they are highly inhabited and they're heavily populated, many different individuals from rural populations want to migrate to this area. So decisions in terms of migration are very important. But lastly, I think another important aspect to this would also include um, decisions in terms of the creation of special economic zones. So the prioritization of certain industries, um, the prioritization of certain um, corporations and bidding in terms of others and, and the like. Um, Honesty, um, I'd want to emphasize that one of the important facets of the model do include making it clear as to which corporations will be in control. So another aspect of this debate that may also be included might, might include um, w- what type of, will it be a single corporation owning the city? Will it be a multi-corporation shared model with different board of directors? Will it be modeled in that same way? Will there be a bidding process to decide which corporations are going to run this city? Will there be a veto mechanism wherein populations and individuals will be able to um, vote against a certain corporation or decide in favor of other corporations? There are many aspects and decisions that are also to take into account, but Obviously, each and every one, one of those safeguards may or may not diminish or enhance a certain principle that you want to forward. So it's very important to be very clear as to when it can do so or when it won't.
1: My next question would probably be about the megacities angle itself, because I need to, I guess, for a motion like this, you need to understand what makes megacities very different from regular cities or other areas with less of a population. So besides just the population angle, what makes megacities unique such that you might want to consider leaving the power with other entities such as corporations?
2: So I want to emphasize that uh, the population angle itself is not just in terms of a large population that is already existing, but it is a growing, rapid population that is is constantly changing in terms of its workforce. So I want to focus on the labor aspect in this part of the debate, where the most megacities across the world, and as projected in different studies from the United Nations and other world organizations, do project that most megacities in the near future are going to be composed of developing countries, which bring in the problem of um, the lack of skills, the lack of education, the, the severe lack of regulation and regulatory environments to be able to be conducive for many of the different workers that will enter into these areas. So it is very, very important to consider, are governments capable of being able to handle this vast amount of individuals that will enter a certain area in a certain city and will they be capable of making optimal business decisions that will increase the overall welfare of many of these workers or increase the welfare of many of these corporations to create a conducive competitive environment. Uh, To give a more concrete example, I'd like to say that most megacities also do incur the problem of um, what we call the informal economy, which is to say that there is the problem and the expectation of, cre- of having a formal job for many immigrants that will go towards a certain megacity, but fail to do so in the process because they end up in structural poverty and they end up in intergenerational poverty afterwards. Because of this, it's very important to also consider are governments capable and, po- and able to be, make decisions in terms of education, Are they capable of making decisions in terms of innovation and investing in the certain requirements and capabilities for many of these individuals? And what is the structure that is created from this? So now I want to just um, briefly talk on some distinctions that people may create in this debate. For example, government may mention that most corporations run on the basis of shareholders, in terms of earning and maximizing the share price of a certain company and this in line coincides with many of the incentives that also exist within a certain megacity many megacities become highly financial highly business oriented highly industrial and many of these considerations are in very much in line with how the profit optimizing mechanisms of many corporations may do so so now tying in that with the labor problem and the regulation problem I mentioned earlier, it's very important to consider whether or not corporations will also do that in the future. Obviously that's debatable in terms of incentives, but I think it's a very, very important realm of this debate that is also part and should be considered.
0: Okay, so in this motion, the issue seems to be similar to debates about nationalization where like one side will question government capability, the other side will question whether corporations even have the interest in protecting, you know, like the public or the public's interest. So you already tackled the first part, which is government incapability. My question is, what is it? What is in it for the corporation? Like, if you were in government, um, the first thing that you'd have to do is to say, well, governments aren't necessarily capable of running megacities. The next part would be like, why would a corporation necessarily fare better? Like, what's in it for them? Like, why are they not likely to like cut their services short or give like subpar um, like services in order to maximize profits? So
2: I'll give a real life example. Um, the inspiration for this motion in particular is the prediction that in 2021, Amazon is considering buying Cyprus It's not realistic in the sense that it's actually going to happen. Most projections say it won't happen. But it's very important to consider that it is possible. And there are reasons to believe that Amazon will benefit from being able to integrate, create a headquarters in Cyprus. Most of those benefits would include, but obviously be not limited to, um, the ability to um, create a tax haven, for example, to have a secure location for their operations or their ability to have a certain secure workforce that they can have for themselves uh, be able to subvert regulations that they may not have in other countries to create a risk-reducing um, risk mechanism where in one country, if they are able to run that city, They are able to have guaranteed profits that there's going to be accrued from that city. And therefore, they don't have to think and consider of the risks on other cities. And therefore, the overall behavior is going to be less pernicious for Amazon or less pernicious for a certain corporation. Those are some considerations that are also debatable in and of itself. But many benefits do come from being able to own and regulate a city, especially if In this debate, in terms of the context, the potential is becoming incredibly high in terms of a workforce because of a high population and a booming population with the potential of training them, giving them skills and specializing in a certain industry that is optimal for a corporation because they can have what we call in debate the interlinkages that they can maximize upon themselves to create in economics, where the term would be the economies of agglomeration where different firms and different organizations can work on the benefits on one another. And that's all controlled by Amazon. That's all controlled by a corporation. All of those benefits are really, 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 really good in terms of the prospects for the expectations and how they can project towards the long-term. And that's why they'd really like that. Now to address the question on, will they not be bad? And in essence, the question of the debate then becomes that to the extent that governments and corporations both have their own incentives to maintain their reputation, maintain their their hold on power, and to assert their control over their population, be it through an election, or be it through maximizing the wealth of many of these populations, it's important to consider how? And what is the operations in which they do so? What I would argue in this debate, if I were Gov, to try and mitigate most of the worst harms that selfish corporations may have, is that to the extent that um, corporations do want to optimize profit all the time, they also have to balance that against making sure that their population is going to be stable, is going to be well fed, is going to have met the basic services and needs that many of the citizens may also want for. And most of that can also coexist in most corporations when a labor union does exist. But is also very much optimized when they know that when certain population group is going to specialize and benefit the corporation, it's going to benefit the bottom line, and then it's going to benefit the overall welfare of the entire city, and then eventually the corporation. Um, Usually, that's how the structure goes when you try to mitigate the worst effects that corporations may behave in.
1: So, so far, we have a really compelling government bench. My question now would be, given all the things that were ran in the government side as to optimization, as to how corporations also have safeguards, what would you then argue at opposition to sort of maybe principally or pragmatically disprove the benefits that corporations may have in areas of large population?
2: Of course. So I want to mention that it really is important to not forget the principle in this debate. And when I talk about the principle, I don't want to say that all of the pragmatic arguments I said earlier were really not principle-based. Most of them are principle-based to the sense that when we talk about increasing the welfare of population, the principle there is in the principle of utility and making sure that people have more money on their hands, they can make more decisions for themselves, and therefore they have more agency. At opposition, what I want to argue now is the reason as to why a vote or a democratic form of accountability and a system of accountability is very important, is that governments, politicians, and states are better able to accommodate the different preferences of individuals when it is construed in terms of a vote. A vote is not only a vote in terms of better wages or a better welfare or a better city in general, but a vote also constitutes the need to consider different other problems that a city may face, such as the problems I mentioned earlier, which many corporations may not directly address, such as intergenerational poverty or uh, inequality um, in in the state, uh, the need for a robust taxation policy. Or in some of these states may also include a weak property policy and an allocation of land and the laws in which these are governed and regulated with one another most corporations may not make arbitrations on that legal basis or a constitutional basis for their consideration of the rights of individuals, but at least states may do so because they're constitutionally and legally bound to do so. Um, those are the principal arguments that also lead into some pragmatic benefits in terms of protecting some civil rights and liberties of people. But more than this, what I'd say at opposition is that what, what this debate should also consider is that when we debate any this house believes that motion, we aren't just only talking about the mega city and the only stakeholders and the interests of these people alone. We are also considering the greater value and the benefit for everyone in the state, because we're talking from the perspective of a neutral observer. And this is important to consider because to the extent that they are also vulnerable populations are very important considerations. Remember, we said at the start of this discussion that many people who go to a mega city in the first place come from rural populations that are migrating for better opportunities and expectations. And it is only states who are in the voting population who take into consideration the votes of people from rural areas or the votes in places from the rest of the population, not only from a megacity, that can take into account those preferences and it shouldn't be ceded to or be taken control of by a corporation. This also leads to other pragmatic benefits that considering rural development, rural economies, or in terms of the relevance or how megacities can balance out those resources with one another, and whether or not it's going to be more harmful to certain populations or not. Um, that's really what I'd focus on an up, because you're re-maneuvering the context, but you're also still working within the confines of gov as to what the motivations of people are. And that's why it's an economics motion. It's really nice.
0: Okay, I, I think we can move on to the last motion, which is about the assumption of economic rationality in um, economic models, and the question that you were trying to ask here is whether that assumption has done more harm than good to the creation and development and design of domestic and foreign economic policy. I really like this motion because I've been recently thinking about economic rationality as well. Like again, from the info slide, it says that you know generally individuals seek to maximize utility and minimize costs, but part of that assumption is People even know what will give them utility or what will make them happy, but and they might know the alternative. So like in reality, that doesn't really work. So we have this thing called the utility function, but the problem is people don't really have the computing ability or whatever to create these functions. I think this has to be acknowledged by both sides. Like I don't think opposition can say that the assumption is true, right? So my question now is, how was the assumption applied in these economic models and how did they initially even affect um, the design of domestic and foreign economic policy to begin with because like i think another assumption in this motion is that there is a link like the assumption directly feeds into the creation and design of these economic policies but my question is how does that actually like how does that link work
2: yes so I want to first approach the motion by doing what I said at the beginning. Try and break it down into its simple elements and making it very clear as to what is the debate really asking about? And I I want to understand it from a perspective of, it's actually really just a debate about the free market and about state intervention, if you really think about it. Because assuming that individuals are able to make perfect, rational decisions for themselves, meaning this is to say that they take into account full, perfect information, they know all of the risks and the benefits and the costs that are involved with a certain uh, option for them or alternative that is done for them, and they make decisions on that basis, then states don't actually have to do so much because individuals, through the invisible hand, through most mechanisms or decisions that they do in the market with firms, in interaction with other institutions, do not need any intervention on the behalf of states or on the behest of states. And I want to give another concrete example as to how this is manifest. When we talked about in the last motion on megacities, the theory behind that would probably be modern human capital theory, that most individuals, when they choose to migrate to a city, take into account all of the risks and the benefits, and they know that I'm gonna have a higher wage. I'm expected to have a higher wage. And therefore, I, even though I have a lower wage in a certain rural area, and I still might relatively be better off in this rural area because I'm relatively more educated than others, I might have a better opportunity in a megacity. However, in reality, in practice, as you also mentioned, this isn't true because the assumption of economic rationality is not only because they don't have cognitive capacity. It's not to say that they're dumb, but it's to say that there are cognitive biases that affect the decision-making process of these individuals, such as loss aversion, the feeling of losing more that affects their decisions in the future, that that makes them incapacitated to make better decisions in the future, or the the just the emotion of, having so much hope or the emotion of having so much potential happiness that you can imagine in your head. These are things that probably will affect many of these individuals and that necessitates some state intervention as to limiting migration in one sense, or probably making sure that the information has to be more available or um, creating more and more regulations that will put more and more barriers to entry for many of these individuals to go to a megacity to bridge that gap in what they call in economic terms to try and bridge the gap of the cost that individuals may actually make to go to a megacity. So I don't want to go and talk about megacities now again, but I do want to say that it is important to consider that the assumption really, really has implications in domestic and foreign policy in the sense that when you presume that individuals are rational actors and they have perfect information and they will always act selfishly and optimize their profit for themselves, you are also saying that they can take in those risks all the time and that that they are always capable of shouldering those risks in every case. The best example here would be the 2008 financial crisis, which notably um, had the assumption that many individuals could take many and many of these loans for themselves and many of these banks could operate on free will and free op- opportunity without much regulation and oversight from the government because they could, they could make their own credit rating agencies, they could evaluate the risks of these individuals, they could understand whether or not it's going to be beneficial in the long run, when in reality, they were just exploiting a lot of people in the process. And that is where it necessitates some domestic or foreign policy to try and regulate many of this behavior because it's imperfect, because the assumption is not true. That's how I'd frame the debate from Gov and how i frame the debate in terms of how it influences policy.
1: Besides looking at the influence in policy, I wanted to ask what the alternative would look like if that was the case. Like what would an economic policy that takes into consideration the, the psyche of people, the irrationality of people, how would that look like then? either now or in the past.
2: Yes, so I want to emphasize that the, obviously the insight and the inspiration behind this motion would be behavioral economics, the study of behavioral economics and the understanding of bounded rationality that individuals do work within some sphere of rationality or do work within some sphere of uh, trying to influence their decision-making behavior given the limited capacity that they currently have. And the founder of that would be Richard Thaler, who I'd encourage a lot of people to really study on and read about in the future because it's I really love behavioral economics. Having said that, I do want to say that understanding how it, how it affects future economic policy and the alternative, the alternative really just would be a state that is hesitant and a state that is more cautious in approaching the behavior of different firms in the market or the behavior of different institutions, the behavior of different bankers, the behavior of different businessmen, the behavior of different corporations. And a state that is more hesitant and more cautious would likely impose more regulations, would likely give more leeway for labor unions to possibly lobby in governments, or would probably also be more open to other models and other theories that are behavioral based, psychology based, and also probably maybe civil based, um, NGO based, or maybe to some extent also gender based or civil society oriented based policies that also consider many other aspects of development that people should consider, because those are the other aspects people actually consider, like their morality, like their emotions, like the psychological biases they have, understanding their behavior in those aspects, and whether or not we should continue to do so. Um, In in concrete terms, I I want to emphasize that one of the influences of the assumption of rationality in actual real-life world debates or the real world would also include the influence of consumerism and the influence of the consumption, being very hesitant with what advertisements we create or also what types of marketing campaigns we will allow and tolerate in the world and what type of decisions we will allow certain individuals to make. How can we, in Richard Taylor's terms, how can we nudge them towards a certain policy decision or nudge them against a certain policy decision in certain cases? Uh, These are all very important um, considerations when you think about The debate and intentionally I made it a wide debate because it it really is full of opportunity and breadth. but at the core of the debate is really just about What is the role of the state in relation to its people and how can they make and can they be trusted to make these decisions
0: themselves. Okay, so there are, to be fair, actual policies that exploit behavioral economics, because I actually took behavioral economics before um, using nudge theory as well. But most of the examples that I do know right now um, actually deal with like individual choices to, for example, get insurance. And I think Taylor was also talking about um, individual choices, and these interventions do work. But my question is, well, a lot of our economic problems come not from individuals, but from bigger firms with their own personalities and those firms might not necessarily like be victims or have or be susceptible to the same psychological biases or cognitive biases that individuals do have. So how would this policy or how would um, the alternative making economic policies taking um, behavioral economics into account um, answer these problems that are created not by individuals, but by bigger firms that are run by multiple individuals that can check um, the cognitive biases of any particular individual in the board of directors?
2: Yeah, so I think the uh, usually how i take into account that consideration, I would first say that many firms and many individuals also exist within their own echo chambers in a corporation. So for example, I would say that if you watch the big short, Um, There's this concept that Richard Taylor also says there, which is the hot hand fallacy that many individuals and firms and a lot of the bankers in the financial crisis did fall into in thinking that uh, it was already going so and so well, the housing market was going perfect and perfect and perfect, but eventually it burst without any other individual thinking that it would. And I think many firms and many organizations are not immune to these biases as well, but to the extent that you do say that they also check and balance one another... I think it's also important to consider that from the perspective of this debate in particular, behavioral economics also serves the purpose of making sure that that information is available to everyone, because corporations usually withhold that information from more people, and the assumption of rationality presumes that many of these individuals, even without this information, will always be able to make rational decisions within the limited choices and the limited, uh, limited amount of access that they currently have and the capacity that they currently have. So I'd still say that there's still a role in which the debate still plays on how many policies on a like a default option in terms of insurance are probably like more options that are tailor fit towards an individual and nudging them towards certain risk-averse loans, for example, that are probably going to be more beneficial for them that they would not have otherwise chosen are also to be considered in this debate.
1: So given that the strategy on government would be to lean heavily on alternatives that rely on behavioral economics, I guess the question now would be, how does opposition maneuver around it? Is the strategy of opposition to merely hype up, for example, rational economics, or would the alternative be to, well, not really bash, but talk badly about the alternatives that might exist? If you were in opposition, per se, what exactly or what main strategy would you try to do?
2: Definitely. Um. I want. I'd want to say that um, opposition does have to defend a world in which the economic assumption of rationality was persistent. Though they do have to be very clear that the debate is also about understanding the role in which this played in terms of early and modern economic models and theories and how in which they influence people and their behavior in the future. So it opposition does have a lot of room to argue on the potential of how this affected the way in which people, for example, create a development model in the West that they can impose and make more accessible to more and more people to create a freer market that more and more individuals can have access to and not have reliance on a state or any other external actor to make those decisions on their behalf. This is a very important consideration because to the extent that opposition also concedes that the assumption is actually false and it's not real in the real world, you are also still saying that to the extent that it is not a real assumption, it is important to still make us an assumption so that people can have more agency and to have more control over what decisions they can make in the future. And states can decide, not need to decide on their behalf but seed that autonomy towards them. And therefore, um, on a comparison of models or in a comparison of what does more harm than good, it has more do- done more good than harm in terms of al- allowing people to make better economic decisions that have benefited them historically over time, such as, but not limited to, the ability to make loans to fund the education of their children, even if they might take a risky house- housing loan for themselves or a student loan for themselves, or the ability to... In many cases, to adopt an economic model that 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 opts in for an international market or a an international organization, because many of these international organizations were also formed with the presumption that other developing countries and other organizations are ready to to freely trade with one another because of economic rationality, because they can also take into account those benefits and costs for themselves instead of just allowing Western centric models of development to also reign. I, I want to be considerate here because I kind of shifted the debate a little bit in terms of a global standpoint rather than a domestic standpoint, but it's also important to make these considerations as well um, when you consider how the assumption affected many different states and how they thought of other actors at the same time, which is the study of game theory in this case.
0: Um, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to touch the game theory yet because yeah. that's like here I made, I made my thesis on Game theory. Um, so, like, would you say that actually the assumption doesn't work, especially uh, when people aren't made aware of number one, the assumption of rationality itself and how it works, and number two, the information that's available in the market? Would you therefore say that the real issue here is one of education? And I'm I, I'm asking you this because um, I also did uh, an, an experiment for behavioral econ where we took a look at the economic decisions of econ majors and um, non-econ majors. And we found that, you know, just based on a purely economic rationality perspective, that, you know, regular lay lay persons are more likely to make irrational decisions just because they have less, like, econ units. They got less economic units. But, like, when, when I made the study, it was more about, like, selfish decisions or whatever. But I suppose a better way to frame it is, like, they're more likely to make economically rational decisions. So would you agree with me that, like at the very least on opposition, you can say that the problems that um, government actually gave can be solved if you give people more education about economics?
2: I I would say that it isn't an education on economics per se, but it is in terms of making sure that states have a responsibility to make information more and more transparent towards individuals. To, for example, make sure that banks, big banks in particular, are more transparent with the ways in which they craft credit rating policies or the ways in which they decide which risks are are more optimal to opt into and making these available to more and more consumers. Um, I think another great parallel here would be our understanding of insider trading, right? We try and disallow that in the status quo because we say that they have leveraged information that allows them to make better economic decisions than others. So to liberalize that, we prevent that and make sure that the information has to be public to to everyone else in the debate. Um, I wouldn't only make the debate only about education, though, as the only determining clash. I would say, furthermore, that... If the, the, if the problem that you just presented is a problem of selfishness and a problem of the presumption of selfishness that individuals do have and they hold in the status quo, then it is also imperative um, to consider what are the incentive structures then of um, economic decision makers or economic theorists or economic, economic people in power that are the ones who um, recommend economic policy to different states and different politicians. Um, and whether or not they can trust individuals to make these decisions for themselves. I think another great example of this would be the unconditional cash transfer model in the Philippines, which works on the presumption that many individuals um, will make decisions that are optimal for themselves or will make money decisions and transactions that are gonna increase their welfare without conditions from the state. Um, Obviously, this is, again, debatable on both sides, and it's not only an issue in education, but it's primarily an issue of whether or not individuals can still be trusted and whether or not states do have a role in that process.
1: So I really like this motion because, as you mentioned, it's very broad. There's a lot of angles to explore. So hopefully, if you're listening to this episode, you got some ideas of angles that you probably weren't able to touch on. If you have any more ideas, then probably this is a good supplement to things you've, you've already discussed in the round. So before we end this episode and before we end this segment on economics we have one last question for you which is a question we ask all our motion contributors as well which would be what general advice would you like to give debaters that are just starting out if they're scared or intimidated or they don't know where to start with their journey what would you recommend that they do
2: all right so um the first thing i'd recommend and this might be probably different from what everyone else does because it's my motto in life. I'd recommend debaters to operate with compassion and kindness and humility in debate. Debate is inevitably a tiring sport. It is very exhausting. A lot of people get a lot intimidated by a lot of people. They get disheartened when they p- compete against other people. And debate can sometimes get a lot toxic. And the feelings and the motivations as to why you join debate can make you tired and make you uh, restless when you always make it about the achievements and everything. But my first primary advice for many novice debaters in particular when they enter debate is to really just have fun, to be compassionate, be kind to others, meet new people, make friends, and to learn from others and be a sponge, absorb everything and all the kind learnings and be a great person and be a... It's a great community. Debate is a great community that I hope that you can opt into, that you can find some safe space in, that you can like find some comfort in whenever you are troubled in the world, in a crazy COVID world that we live in. This, this, it's really, really, really awesome to just be in debate. The second point of advice I'd give many novices, and this is more debate related, is just to uh, take it one step at a time. It really comes very, very slowly. Uh, Success is not gonna come in one single tournament. And obviously, I don't expect you to be in debate for all of your life. This is only one part of your life. And it is also very, very important for you to cherish the moment, cherish the moment, and to also just be grateful for every single learning that you can have. And just take into account the fact that debate teaches you to be a better person, to be a kinder person, a more empathetic person, but also to just be a more understanding and critical person of your own beliefs and others' beliefs, and to just Think of the systems in the world that govern us and to just be more reflective of that. that. That that's the best opportunity debate can give you that nowhere else you can find. And I hope that this community can at least provide you with that.
0: So thank you so much, Luigi, for giving us motions and for lending us your time. Truly, your positivity and you know your wisdom is truly inexhaustible, even if it might like exhaust more negative people like myself. Like, truly, <laughs> thank you so much for agreeing to do this for us. Um, so I think that's it for this post bit analysis and for this episode in general. Um, bye-bye. <laughs> we'll Bye. see you in the next thank one. You. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bye.
1: Thank
0: you, thank you. Salamat, salamat. Thank you. Salamat.